I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Nick Mason is the only member of Pink Floyd to be present for every album recording. And so, the drummer serves as the iconic band's official historian. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Nick Mason shares his perspective on the past, present, and future of Pink Floyd. Then we review the new surprise album from hip-hop star Drake. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, later in the show, we are going to review the uh, album, or should we call it mixtape? There's a debate about that. The Drake dropped with great surprise. If you're reading this, it's too late. Pulling what many in the music industry are calling a Beyonce, where all of a sudden, with no fanfare, you just put new music out there. And he's being rewarded for it. You know, well, Beyonce didn't win a Grammy, but don't cry for her. She did quite well. And Drake's doing really well. This album that was originally a mixtape debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, selling 535,000 copies and being streamed 17.3 million times on Spotify. That's pretty good for something we weren't even expecting. But that's later in the show. First, we've got some music news. One day when the glory comes, it will be ours. It will be ours. Oh, one day when the war is won, we will be sure, we will be sure, oh, glory, 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 glory. That is the stirring song, Glory, as performed by Common and John Legend at the Oscars last week, Jim. Hard yeah. to hear that without a tear in your eye. It got really. you choked up, got me choked up. My wife was sitting there with me. She was getting choked up. The audience response was very emotional to that song. I think a lot of people consider that the highlight of the telecast in a lot of ways. Similar response when the duo performed the song at the Grammys earlier in the month. As a result of this television rush for this particular song, it won Best Original original song at the Oscars. Huge sales bump uh, is being forecast. 70% increased in downloads in the days immediately after the Oscar telecast. So big winners at the Oscars and the Grammys earlier uh, for glory. Lady Gaga, the reinvention of Lady Gaga has been carried out on national television. We've been watching this with our jaws dropping. Like, where are the weird, bizarro outfits? Where's the meat dress? Where's the face paint? Instead, she's like a nun. She's dressed up in a gown and singing these songs straight. She did a Sound of Music medley, the performer you would probably least expect to see doing that. Well, that would be Miley Cyrus, but but Gaga's number two.
she did a spectacular job. People were talking about it the next day. Those of us who have been covering her for years knew that she could sing the heck out of anything, and she proved it at the Oscars. With Tony Bennett, the duet that she's been doing with him at the Grammys, promoting that album that they did together at the end of last year, she has basically reinvented herself in the last few weeks in these televised performances. It's interesting to see where she carries her career from here. The other thing, Jim, that was fascinating about these nationally televised events, talking about the Oscars, people do pay attention. They buy albums and singles based on these performances. We saw Beck coming out of nowhere to win the Grammy with the morning phase, winning over the heavy favorites Beyonce and Sam Smith. You know, his acceptance speech nearly averted a Kanye interruptus moment. Yeah. But uh, the album sales, morning phase, jumped six times in the week after the Grammy Album of the Year Award, going from number 39 to number 8 on the charts. We saw Annie Lennox. She came up and gave that spectacular performance of Jay Hawkins' I Put a Spell on You at the Grammys. She got a 335% sale increase for that album Nostalgia that he she put out at the end of last year, basically an album that not many people paid attention to, all of a sudden put herself back in the national conversation with a few minutes of airtime on the Grammys. Sam Smith, even though he didn't get the big award, he got a 91% sales bump because he got all that screen time at the Grammys. So TV is still selling recordings. Well, it's extraordinary because, uh, you know, even Katy Perry, she had a sales bump from her Grammy performance, but her sales actually didn't go up as fast as they did the week before because she did a nationally televised performance at the Super Bowl halftime that increased her sales such an exorbitant number. So, Jim, I think we can safely say that these dog days of winter, there's three television events that probably influence consumers' buying habits more than any other thing that year, uh, the Super Bowl halftime, the Grammys, and the Oscars. Rolling in my six foot. What everybody saying? Hell yeah. Greg, that's the uh, Dr. Dre classic, Let Me Ride. He's not exactly riding off into the sunset quite yet, but this was shocking when I saw this. This is a little weird news item. Dr. Dre is 50 years old, and to celebrate, he is on the cover of the AARP magazine. Happy 50th, Dr. Dre, it says. You know, that's the magazine. They don't like to, to, to give out the whole acronym anymore, but that's the magazine of the American Association of Retired Persons. And I, know, I, I just cannot think of Dre as being my age, much less your age, you know, as an ARP member. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Dre is something to aspire to, to people who follow the business. He came in once again this year at number one on Forbes' list of the highest paid musicians in the world, making a ridiculous $620 million. So I'd say he could retire in style if he really wants to. listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song It's What We Do, from Pink Floyd's 15th, and I'm pretty sure final album, The Endless River. The great psychedelic rock band responsible for classics like The Wall, Dark Side of the Moon, 
They reunited last year to release the album, and the current lineup includes Floyd Originals, David Gilmore, and our guest this week, drummer Nick Mason. Greg, The Endless River is basically a tribute to keyboardist Rick Wright, who was forced to resign from the band while they were making The Wall, and who died in 2008. This is an epitaph for Wright, and I'd argue a tribute to an important member of one of the most important bands in rock history. In a sense, the album picks up after the previous Floyd release, 1994's The Division Bell, when Wright reunited with Gilmore and Mason, and you can still hear his stamp on this release of mostly instrumental tracks. As we mentioned earlier, there's been a rotating cast of characters through Pink Floyd. Sid Barrett, Roger Waters, Gilmore, Wright. Mason is the only member to have played on every album released under the band name. That distinction earns him the role of official historian for the group, and so we had a lot of questions when we sat down with Nick Mason late last year. Here he is talking about how the Endless River came together. Well, it's quite a, a sort of curious tale in a way, and it's, it's taken a, an enormous amount of time to get to where we've, where we've arrived at now. It is, in fact, new music, because although there were ideas uh, that were created while we were working on Division Bell, they were in such raw form, really, that um, by the time they're actually finished and, and mastered on this record, they, they really comprise of, uh, of new pieces. Um, the curious thing is, because of the way that they were created originally and they're based very much on the band jamming together in the studio, uh, they have elements, I think, that uh, actually go back over our entire history. And uh, Re-listening to it, I can hear elements of... Uh, something like Saucer Full of Secrets or or Metal even. You know, I've seen a few interviews that you and Dave have done about the record Endless River, and jamming is a word that comes up in, in almost all of them. And one of the things that tickles me as a lifelong Pink Floyd fan, you know, I go back to something like the Live at Pompeii movie, and there was such a joy evident in those four musicians playing together and making this otherworldly music. And I get the sense that it was there still for the division bell when you talk what were there like four hours worth of of these jams oh no nothing like that i think it was more like 20 oh my um. <laughs> <laughs> those are people who were enjoying playing together making music was that still there when you and dave went in with phil manzanera and youth and the other people who collaborated on endless River? was it still fun for you oh yeah i mean by the time we went in uh, for these these sessions this was no longer a matter of sitting down and jamming this was using those those seeds and uh, repairing or reinventing or improving uh, those sort of things but the, that whole concept of of playing together was was really important and i think it was something that got lost over the years particularly with the never ending quest for perfect sound nick when you were making the division bell and and you had these endless hours of music available it must have been tough to to winnow that record down to uh, its final state i understand that there was talk of a double album at that time why did you eventually go with just the one studio record when The Division Belt came out in 94? Well, I think the real answer is we ran out of time. I mean, we whittled down, you're right, it was intended to be a double album. We were going to do one album of songs and we'd, we'd worked 
pretty well on the songs that we wanted to include on that part of the record. And we hadn't really even started on the, the, the second part of the record, which was to include a lot more instrumental pieces. And we were talk to, talking about doing, in fact, at that time, of doing an ambient record that was a sort of continuous piece. The big problem was that we had committed to touring. And the problem with the Pink Floyd tour <laughs> is it needs to be set up well in advance. There's an awful lot that needs doing. And I'm not just talking about the catering. The, um, you know, the building of the stage, the building of any effects and all the rest of it all has to be done so far in advance that whatever we thought would be the timescale of finishing the record was so completely wrong. We really just had to replan, do a single record and get on with the, taking the show out. was talking about this idea that the division bell was unique at least in latter day Pink Floyd records in that it was a lot about you and Rick and and David playing together again whereas I think the quote from David was that previously the songs had begun to start with one or two members of the band and then the rest of the band would be brought in this was a much more democratic album the way it was conceived uh, leading to the to the jam session so it, it, it seems like that owes a lot to the way Pink Floyd was in its earliest incarnation. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think um, in terms of the, the politics of the band, I don't think it matters if one person comes in with a song. The, the critical thing is that it is worked up as a band rather than, as I say, rather than with one guide track and then put the drums on and then afterwards put the bass on. You know, there's an absolute feel to music that's very different when it's done done for real, with with everyone playing, I say, against each other, which is a bad choice of word, really, mm. but in, in unison. Well, Nick, as I mentioned to you before we started chatting, we thought that given the tribute nature to Rick Wright of The Endless River and the fact that it does reference these three decades, uh, almost, of Pink Floyd history, it might be an interesting way to deal with some of this history for our younger listeners uh, to talk about some some tracks that were key for Rick and, and take you back to the beginning. You know, I, I went back to Astronomy Domine, which I think many of us lifelong Floyd fans would say is a defining song. And it was co-written by Sid Barrett and Rick Wright. Do you remember the writing of that song and the recording? I guess that's, those are the two things we want to talk about with each of these tracks, how they kind of came together and how they made it to these versions we've loved for so long. The background to that is that those songs were all really quite well rehearsed in advance because we were playing them live all the time. Mm. And I absolutely remember the, that intro to Astronomy Domine, which is Rick on the Farfisa doing these sort of uh, intergalactic space messages. Was Rick particularly close to Sid? Were, were, was anybody in the band closer than anybody else to Sid? I'm not really sure. I would have thought the person who would have been closest to Sid probably would have been Roger because they'd both grown up together in Cambridge. I mm. think they were actually, having said that, um, later when David joined, David was actually probably closer to Sid than, than any of us. 
Right, um, right. But the, the reality was that uh, Roger and myself and Rick had met at college in London, uh, but Sid still had the connection with Roger because they'd both been brought up in, and been to school in Cambridge. With Sid's departure midway through Sourceful of Secrets, everybody else has to step up, is the perception in, in the songwriting. I wanted to ask you about Remember a Day, such a beautiful Rick Wright song. I mean, Rick had a very distinctive style of, of writing, and, and we had, he certainly was responsible for a number of songs that we tried to, as single releases. I think probably that we just, we really, at the end of the day, were not a, a singles band, and so to some extent, some of Rick's work got rather sort of short shrift as being released and, and then lost. Mm. But... Um, no, he's he's got a very dis- and a very distinctive singing voice as well. He's on so many records in the backing vocals, if not as as lead vocal. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Was that keyboard signature of his there from the beginning? Whether he's playing Farfisa or or the electric piano, and then later the synthesizers. I mean, did he always sound like Rick Wright? Yes, I think that's the you know that that's perhaps part of the business of uh, Endless River marking. Rick's sort of genius in a way because he had this really unusual a unique style a unique approach to music and the way he'd figure his melodies or whatever was something that was pretty well instantly recognizable and of course not to to short your signatures or Dave's either I I read a quote you gave somewhere about how you just find yourself there there are certain Nick Mason films on the drums and you just find yourself going to them that's absolutely right. I've just, the same favourite films for the last 45 years. <laughs> they've, served, they've served me well. We'll talk more drum fills and Pink Floyd history with Nick Mason after the break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, we're going to tackle new music from hip-hop's emo impresario, Drake. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, my partner is Jim DeRigatis, and we're featuring our conversation with Pink Floyd drummer Nick Mason. He joined forces with fellow Floyd member David Gilmore, as well as Roxy Music musician and producer Phil Manzanera for 2014's The Endless River, a tribute to the late keyboardist Rick Wright. Jim, for much of the band's career, Floyd's two leaders, Roger Waters and David Gilmore, were famously at odds, but Mason managed to survive each incarnation. We return to our conversation with Nick Mason by asking about the dynamics of Pink Floyd in its early days. In other words, did they get along? Counting the leaves which tremble at dawn The answer is we we got on pretty well. The great thing with the band in its in its infancy is that everyone absolutely has the common goal. We're all striving for the, exactly the same thing, and we're touring together. And there's a, certainly a band on tour has very much a gang mentality. Really, would I think we probably relied on ganging up on our manager rather than on each other <laughs> at the time. Mm-hmm. It's one of those sort of curious things that. Uh, it gets more difficult, of course, as you become more successful and and grow older because initially the, the band is the only thing in your life. But then eventually you get married, have children. Uh, you also get involved in deciding that maybe your place in the band is not sufficiently recognized or or that you feel you want to do things the other way, that maybe – you don't like the songs someone else is writing. I mean, there's a million things to to go wrong. Mm-hmm. But the the early days are, are pretty. Um, it's pretty easy compared to what can happen later. We want to get back to to going through the history. But while Manzanera's names come up a few times, of course, the guitarist in Roxy Music, a great guitarist, right? Did that did that make him more sympathetic to that even greater guitarist, Dave Gilmore's work, or or how do you feel? You know, I'd be worried if I was a guitarist and they brought in another guitarist. You know, one of the great benefits and one of the great pluses of of working in a band is the opportunity occasionally to work with other people. And inevitably, other people are sometimes better than you are. But actually, that's not necessarily something to be seen as a as a big problem. Actually, we get better by working with better people. So I think the opportunity to work with other musicians in any shape, way, shape, or form is is fantastic. We, we go through a great experimental phase, you know, with the middle period Pink Floyd around this era, you know, after, post-Sid Barrett, pre-Dark Side. And I think the people are most familiar with, obviously, the Dark Side era. And Wright really steps up on a track like Great Gig in the Sky, for example, a, a solo composition by Rick from the Dark Side of the Moon record. You know, Wright as a composer perhaps doesn't get his due. It seems like some of the contributions that Rick made to the band have somewhat been obscured. But during this period when the band was at its commercial peak, Wright was not only stepping up as a soundscape kind of guy on the keyboards, but as a a writer of these great songs. You know, how was that role integrated into the band? How was his contributions integrated into the band? Was it something that he'd have to bring the songs into you guys and say, hey, look what I wrote? Or was it more like a, an assignment kind of deal? Rick, what have you got? How was that handled? We never really had a, a, a clear way of working. I mean, in the history of the band, all sorts of different uh, ways have been used to, to provide the material, including one individual bringing in music and lyrics, another the band producing music or someone producing music and then adding vocals to it. 
in the case of Darkside, it was a slightly different situation because it was agreed in advance what we were actually trying to do. We actually had a plan, and uh, there was a plan involved, uh, lyrics specifically that Roger went to attack in terms of the subject matter being about the different pressures of, that life put upon us or anyone else. And I suspect with um, that particular track, there was the knowledge that we wanted this one very specific piece and I think whether Rick wrote it to order or whether he came in with that and we realised that that would fit fit the bill because somewhere along the line it was decided to use that as the track and then to get Claire Torrey to add the, the vocal part on top of it. Yeah, that's a pretty extraordinary moment and I'm curious about did Rick sort of have, I don't know if you remember the details on this on something like this, but whether you know, Rick sort of had that idea of that female vocal part as part of the composition, or was that sort of like, oh, once we've created this great piece of music, the idea was hatched to to have the female vocalist sort of finish it off? The answer is I can absolutely not remember now where <laughs> where it, that all came from. I mean, I think it's quite possible that originally the idea was that there might be just a regular vocal put on top of it. And then somewhere along the line, it would, there was an idea for a, a far more sort of radical approach. And I think the, the thinking behind it, there was a, a singer called uh, Kathy Barbarian who used to do a lot of sort of 12-note Stockhausen-type, uh, 12-note row, rather discordant-sounding parts, singing parts. In the end, we I think Alan Parsons brought Claire Torrey in. And she... Uh, she was sort of briefed very, very roughly as to what was wanted and absolutely got it right and um, did this piece more or less improvised and probably only in one recording session, which would have been a two, two or three hour session. Rick is also credited with writing Us and Them, and he gets a solo credit, which is rare, especially given Roger's conceptual framework for Dark Side. Do you remember that song coming together, Nick? Us. tend to uh, not remember exactly how we did it in the studio because that part, as I think along with a number of other parts, had actually been played live for quite a while. Mm. We'd actually taken uh, the bones of Darkside out on, on the road. And a number of parts actually got changed completely. Sort of, uh, on the Run, for instance, was originally almost a sort of jazzy piece with Rick playing uh, uh, Rhodes, Fender Rhodes piano. Mm. On it, I seem to remember. So by the time it got into the studio, if it was one of the pieces from the road, it would almost certainly have been would have been put down really quite quickly and quite easily. Right, because you had it under your uh, belt. Yeah, yeah. When you talk about the compilation, right? So I think people today sitting at home with their little laptop, (laughs) right, (laughs) don't understand. But I imagine all four of the members of Pink Floyd, plus Alan Parsons and associated engineers over a 24 or 48-track board at that point, everybody's playing with the faders. Was that literally what it was like? Yeah, absolutely, because it uh, it wasn't 48-track. We were dealing with, a, I think, a 16-track at the time. Wow. Um, And consequently, we'd, we'd... used up all the pretty well all the tracks by the time the basic 
recording was done. And so everything else that we needed to add on would, would be done as a tape loop. So the control, at one point, the control room would have the, the multi-track playing, but it would also have all these loops of tape that were put round mic stands and maybe would, there'd be four or five of those that could be faded up or down. And so that might be wind noise or it might be the, the vocal, you know, the, the spoken parts mm. being uh, revolved or any of the sound effects. We simply didn't have enough space on the recording tape to put all the sound effects that we wanted to do. So they, they all had to be flown in in this, uh, you know, in this rather clunky um, tape loop way. And was that still as much fun? We were talking about the fun of the jamming earlier and things coming together. Was this? Were, were you still having fun when you were recording Dark Side of the Moon? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, recordings are, is fun the right word? Yeah, it's, it's a great process. It, generally... When it's working and you're creative and, or being creative and getting results, recording's terrific because it, it sounds so good on a good day. You know, the great thing is to come into the, into the control room when you've been out in the studio playing and come in and go, wow, is that what it sounds like? <laughs> and so you, you sort of live in hope of those moments. When you guys were making Wish You Were Here follow up to this huge selling record, was there a sense of, well, everybody's paying attention, we better step up our game, you make another monumental record, but I was curious about the atmosphere in the studio as you prepare to make something like Wish You Were Here. Problem with Wish You Were Here is being wise well after the event, like sort of 35, 40 years, we probably went back into the studio too soon after Dark Side with a determination to do something different which is not an easy way of approaching it. I think, you know, what would have been far better for us would have been to have spent more time actually touring with Dark Side. Ideally, what would have been even better would have been to have filmed it so we could look at it now and see, hmm. see what it really sounded like. But I think, consequently, it got pretty scratchy in the studio because we, spent, we were in there for sort of six months on and off without producing anything that we were felt worthy of of turning into a record and it wasn't till really a long way down the line that the, the beginnings of the record actually came to sort of came to fruition and uh, by that time um, we were pretty well at our wit's end I think something like that wonderful, long, flowing, multi-part instrumental Shine On. Talking about the new record, Endless River, and, and these Floydian things that, that you found yourselves uh, going back to throughout the history, it always struck me that Shine On wouldn't have been possible or ho- had already been kind of uh, pre-imagined by echoes on metal, right? Very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, I think that's... Uh there's absolutely a sort of thread that runs through our, our history. I mean, for me, I think it starts with Piper, but I think it more or less moves from Piper to Saucer to Metal. I think Atom Heart Mother, both Atom Heart Mother and Umaguma are, I mean, they're interesting records, they're part of what we did, but I, I don't see 
the same links between uh, those two albums and, and where we eventually, or the thread that we went, that we followed in the end. No, I, I think uh, Shine On was a, was a more sophisticated approach to, than metal had been, uh, than Echoes in particular. You know, Echoes, I think, was interesting, but probably slightly overlong. Well, in my opinion, looking back on it now. <laughs> well, Shine On with those, that multi-part uh, aspect to it, you know, very much outlined on, on the record as such. Was it sort of a stitched-together job there, Nick, or was it sort of conceived of as one long piece uh, from the get-go? I don't think I'll admit to stitched together. Uh, <laughs> uh, he meant in a good way. Finely tailored. There you go. Um, <laughs> No, I think it became, again, I think music sort of has it almost a life of its own and it becomes more and more apparent how it should work and what might have been a series of pieces then becomes, it becomes obvious that there's a way of knitting them together and I think maybe Shine On was, that was part of the way Shine On worked. I mean, it was also, you know, coloured by the, the sort of famous story of Sid appearing in the studio and I think that again was one of those sort of fortuitous moments where perhaps Roger's approach to what he was writing was sort of crystallised into something more. Remember when you were young <laughs> You shone like the sun You know, we, we've had box set releases in some of these epic records that Pink Floyd did in its, uh, uh, during its peak years, and there's very little in terms of extra material that you have officially released. Is that because you didn't feel it was up to par, or, or, or there simply wasn't that much uh, created in the first place? Uh, there wasn't that much. I mean, in, in, I think in previous eras, we tended to work... We were very specific. Once we were in the studios, we sort of tended to know what we were doing so there weren't very many discards if we had a piece we probably had a place for it that's highly efficient nick you guys sound like you guys were a, a great team in the studio there was no excess fat to, to trim off at the end is that what you're saying <laughs> well ex- yeah. except it'd be great now to have a vast quantity of excess fat <laughs> and um, be able to you know find all those sort of hidden gems or whatever. But but um, Division Bell was unusual in that respect, that we'd had actually spent quite a lot of time and, quite, uh, and had quite creative results out of it. Yeah, I was going to say, to follow up on that thread, you look at a career like Hendrix, I mean, the guy released, what, three official studio records in his lifetime, and we've got, like, what, hundreds and hundreds of albums that have been created posthumously of the stuff that he left behind that he didn't deem worthy enough to release uh, when when he was alive. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I mean, you, you just imagine how many Pink Floyd records could be floating out there, you know, of, of additional material. Yeah, we tackled it a different way. We just re-released Dark Side of the Moon again in its 40th or 50th or 60th anniversary edition. <laughs> <laughs> now, Nick, do you expect uh, your fans to buy each version of Dark Side that uh, you guys release? No, well, I, I said to a couple of people that there's a figure in... Um, I think in in the UK, about one in three households having a copy of Dark Side, but we've sort of resolved that it's probably actually one in 25 households, and they have 10 copies because they keep forgetting <laughs> they've got it. <laughs> and nobody really, I mean, now everything's digital, right? You don't have to move those those LPs anymore. 
absolutely. Are you disappointed, Nick, that you won't be able to tour the Endless River? I mean, I've read quotes. You know, I'm a drummer. That's what I do. I like to drum, and you're not going to be able to go and and do that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, it would be nice if we could do it, but I absolutely accept that it's it's difficult from so many points of view. It, it really, apart from David not wishing to uh, go out on the road again and wanting to get on with being David Gilmore for a while, I think there's. Um, there, there are other issues as well. The fact that Rick's no longer with us, it would mean we'd have to... We couldn't actually play it in the way that it was sort of intended and made, uh, as in with Rick improvising. There may be another keyboard player out there who has the, those same same skills, but I think it, it's unlikely he'd have the same melodic approach. There was that brief window there, though, Nick, that I think fans' hopes were raised obviously when Rick was still alive and Roger was briefly uh, reunited with the three of you to perform some songs for the charity show. Did you feel that there was ever going to be a po- even a possibility that there may be something beyond that, or did you know at the time that this was kind of a, a finite one-time-only thing? Oh, I think it, it was pretty obvious, really, it was a finite one-time-only thing. I mean, having said that, I would hope that if there was ever the opportunity again to do something as worthy for the right for the right reasons that would be able to step up and and repeat that but i think there would be no appetite either from roger or from david really to to work together nick aren't you the great compromiser in this band couldn't you get these two guys together and <laughs> figure something out <laughs> he's you know actually you're the on israel palestine right now yeah. he's got he's got yeah. more difficult things <laughs> you need to be the voice well, of reason here no, I've, I've sort of described myself as less of Henry Kissinger and more of Neville, Neville Chamberlain, the <laughs> prime minister who came back from Berlin waving a piece of paper saying peace in our time about yeah. six months before the bombing started. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, but you, don't, you don't have to work, Nick. One of the things I've always loved talking about you is you're, you're some of the English rock aristocracy. The only exceptions I've ever interviewed, been lucky enough to interview, you and John Paul Jones. You know, there's this wonderful attitude of like, I was somewhere great. I did some great things. Boy, I'm lucky. I'm loving my life. Right? You, you know, you're a family man, and you race these antique cars. And you, I mean, it must be pretty good to be Nick Mason. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, um, I, there's not many people I wish to change places with. Uh, no, I've been. Um, See, rock stars uh, never say that. Rock stars like to say, you know, oh no, I'm a tortured artist. You know, <laughs> no, I'm absolutely not a tortured artist. I'm I'm a lucky man. My wife pointed out to me the other day, she said, uh, you do realize if they'd had um, auditions for Pink Floyd, you'd never have got in, which (laughs) I thought was a little unkind. Anyway, I, I did explain to her, I said, do you know what, nor would any of the others. That's a great way to, to put it, uh, Nick. Thank you so much for, uh, once again, being our guest on Sound Opinions. My pleasure. Thanks. To listen to this entire interview again, visit us at soundopinions.org. There you can see all of our interviews, photos, performances, and lists 24-7. And do you have a comment on today's show or anything in the world of music? Jim and I are all ears. Call us and leave us a voicemail at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Greg and I review the new album from Drake. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Ten bands, fifty bands, hundred bands, man. Let's just not even discuss it, man. OMG, sleep. I ain't tripping. I'ma let 'em sleep. I ain't tripping. Let 'em rest in peace. I can tell you how it happened. I can tell you about them safe house nights out in Calabasas. I can tell you not a rapper. Trying to set this story. I don't even open up the package. Who you with? Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is a track called Ten Bands from the latest album slash mixtape by Drake. If you're reading this, it's too late. Greg, the debate about whether this was an album or a mixtape comes from the fact, as we said earlier, that Drake kind of dropped it as a surprise. He pulled a Beyonce. This would be his fourth album, if we consider it an album. Certainly iTunes considers it an album. It's selling gangbusters there. Who is Drake? Born Aubrey Drake Graham in Toronto, Ontario. I don't think we need to give a lot of background. He's one of the most successful people to emerge on the pop landscape in the last decade. He was originally an actor. Okay, people will remember him from that Canadian tween series, Degrassi, The Next Generation. He uh, hit the music world in a big way in 2006 with a series of mixtapes. He had a couple of really high-profile sponsors, mentors, champions, Kanye West, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne. He wound up signed to Lil Wayne's Cash Money label. And many people are saying that the way this record was dropped might be because of the fact, you know, Wayne is fighting about control of that label, and he and Wayne both want off that label, and that may be what the title is referring to. Certainly many of the songs refer to it. Drake has had a great musical partner throughout his career so far with Noah, 40, Shabib, that producer, along with a few other familiar faces, come back for this record. Let's play a track, and we'll come back and give our opinion. This is the song Energy by Drake from If You're Reading This, It's Too Late on Sound Opinions. Look, I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people trying to drain me of my energy. They're trying to take the wave from a with the kid and pray for you. I got girls in real life trying to fuck up my day. Going online, that ain't part of my day. I got real popping with my family too. I got that can never leave Canada too. I got two mortgages, 30 million in total. I got that is still trying to me over. I got rap. Days are over for life, yeah. I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people trying to drain me of this energy, trying to take away from it. Wait the kid and pray for you. I got people talking down, man, like I give a. I bought this one a purse, I bought this one a truck, I bought this one a house, I bought this one a mall. I keep buying, just make sure you keep track of it all. I got. Asking me about the code for the Wi-Fi So they could talk about the timeline And show me pictures of their friends Just to tell me they ain't really friends Ex-girl, she the female version of me I got strippers in my life, but they virgins to me I hear everybody talking about what they gonna be I got high hopes for you, we gonna see I got money in the course of law, my are free About to call your ass a Uber, I got somewhere to be I hear fairy tales about how they gonna run up on me well, run up when you see me, then we gon' see. I got enemies, got a lot of enemies, got a lot of people trying to drain me of this energy, trying to take away from it. Wait the kid and pray for you. That is Energy, a track from the new Drake album slash mixtape. If you're reading this, it's too late. 
Jim, I give uh, Drake a lot of credit for basically creating his own sound, his own aesthetic. You know, he's been working with these producers, Boy Wanda, Noah Forty, Shabib. They've created this very stripped-down, atmospheric environment for him to do these soul-searching, introspective raps. Some people say he's incredibly self absorbed and hmm. you know he comes across as this woe is me millionaire type hip-hop guy why are we feeling sorry for him but i also think that there's a level of if not sincerity and certainly drama in what he's doing that's created a different landscape for him to occupy as a hip-hop artist and i give him a lot of credit for that i really like this 2011 album take care and i sort of see if you're reading this it's too late as a sequel to that record however a half-finished sequel a number of people have commented on the fact that the production feels really minimalist on this to the point where the beats almost disappear, the atmosphere is really vaporous, there's a lot of heavy lifting being done by Drake's voice. He's basically carrying this album on his own. The hooks are incredibly minimal. They're not there at all. We're not hearing any kind of pop hits on this record at all. And I'm thinking that the fact that they sort of call it this mixtape as opposed to an official album is because they're hedging their bets a little bit. Like they either didn't want to finish this album or couldn't finish it. For whatever reason, it does sound half-baked. The album really doesn't pick up any steam until the end. I think the best tracks are the last third of the record, that song about his mother. He usually has at least one song per album that addresses mom in a kind of a frank and open way that's both funny and poignant, You and the Six. And then that track, 6 p.m. in New York, which is basically a stream-of-consciousness rap by Drake that contains some of his strongest and most energetic performing on the entire album. I wish there had been more of that on this record. Frankly, it's not a very good record. I'm on the cusp of giving it a trash, and I think it is a trash, because I can't see myself listening to this record again because Drake's previous work has been so good. A real well, letdown for me. <laughs> I'm certainly not on the cusp of giving it a trash, and I'm firmly in that camp. You know, I want to take some issue with two of the adjectives you used. You know, you said he's been mining his own sound. Heck no. He has been ripping off Kanye West's 808 well, and Heartbreak from the beginning. Well, have. Well, yeah, and but that's fine. But I think fine, he's taken it and, and done it, taken it to a deeper level. Well, I would disagree because he has nothing to say. This guy is a mope. He is really hard to like. <laughs> I got a lot of enemies. I got a lot of enemies trying to drain me of my energy. Listen, man, people in Ferguson, people in Staten Island, people on the south and west sides of Chicago, they got problems. You don't got problems. What What are your problems? You got a problem with your label. Big deal. And then you can't find romance. And I think that's entirely your fault. If your pickup line is like the one you're, you're spewing out in Madonna, hey, lady, I can make you famous and successful like Madonna, you don't deserve to have a girlfriend. This is absolutely a trash it record. <laughs> wow. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us takes a trip to the desert island, pops a quarter in the jukebox, and plays you something we can't live without. Greg, what do you got? Jim, I've been on a binge lately with Richard Davies' music. Richard Davies, a brilliant songwriter out of Australia, 
I was doing some research looking for a particular artist, and I stumbled across a track on YouTube of Davies' band with Eric Matthews. They put out one album together called Cardinal, and that led me to all his other work, which I really enjoyed throughout the 90s, both solo and then with the Australian band The Moles, which was his first band. They were a great merger of Baroque pop, psychedelia, and this very skewed sense of melody as a songwriter. And the track I want to play is a single they released in 1992 called What's the New Mary Jane? Now, Beatles fans will know that title because it was a famous track that the Beatles recorded in the late 60s but did not officially release. In fact, until years after this Moles single came out, was it officially released by the Beatles on one of their anthology three compilations. I have to say, Davies' version has nothing to do with that song at all, except for the title, is better than what the Beatles put out. The Beatles track is kind of a goof. This Davies track is much denser piece of work and symbolic of this world that the Moles were able to create on their records. If you want twisted, druggy, tape slowing down, distorted pop music, Richard Davies was your guy in the 90s. He didn't sound like anybody else in the middle of the grunge era. He was putting out these really well-crafted pieces of music. The Moles with What's the New Mary Jane from 1992 on Sound Opinions.
Richard Davies and the Moles with What's the New Mary Jane, a really fine Desert Island jukebox pick, Greg. I'm sorry I didn't get to it first. You know, the Flaming Lips covered that song a lot during the Clouds Taste Metallic days and did some work with Davies. Good stuff. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Dr. DeRigatis, you and I are going to be the rock doctors, and we are going to help a musical patient get over some heartbreak. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, Evan Chung, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. Put your number in my phone. Put your number in my phone. I hope to get some time alone. I want to get to know you more. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. But everything is fine. Don't give in to despair. Cause I love you, honey New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Tim in San Diego. I wasn't a fan of the first Father John Misty record, and I really wanted to hate the follow-up, especially after all the pre-release fawning from the poppest hipster elite. But I have to say, I gave it a shot and found it absolutely charming, and repeated listens have made it even more endearing. And this angers me greatly, but it's good to know that great art can occasionally break through our prejudices. Love your show, and thank you for always exploring that musical treasure map for us. Cheers. Bye-bye. This is Serena. I've been listening to I Love You, Honey Bear nonstop since its release, so I was a little bit shocked by Jim's Trash It review today. The bit Jim mentioned about the singer correcting a girl for misusing the word malaprop seemed to me to be more about L.A.'s vapid scene than misogyny. She says like literally music is the air she The malaprops make me want to fucking scream I wonder if she even knows what that word means Well, it's literally not that I can see where maybe it's lacking in the music, but lyrically, I haven't heard a better record in a few years. A total buy-it record for me. Thanks, guys. Hi, it's Sound Opinions. My name is Stephanie Munoz, calling from Boston. I just finished listening to your show on Cuba, and I enjoyed it immensely. I am only 26, but for a long time I've had an interest in Latin music and music that has Latin influence, and I couldn't be more ecstatic about the recent political events And as a music student myself, um, I'm working on my master's at the New England Conservatory. I'm just so excited for all the possibilities and the knowledge that's going to come from Cuba for those musicians who aren't known on a worldwide scale, but yet they have the essence and the heart of all the beautiful rhythms that are found in Cuba. So you have a huge fan now. I'm so glad that you guys did this. Stay warm and hope to hear your next show. This is Alan in Chicago. 
just listened to the wonderful segment on Cuban music. It was brilliant, inspiring. One artist that I would like to have heard mentioned is Celia Cruz. But just an utterly great segment, and also the, the way you covered Leslie Gore. That was also very nice. Thanks. Bye. Hello, this is Robert Webb from Marin City, California, and I just got to tell you, man, I love the program on Cuban music. I mean, I could have listened to two or three hours more of that. I had no idea of how Cuban music had come in and influenced rock and roll. I mean, Bo Diddley, I didn't even think of that, and that, that was, that's great. Love your show, and keep on coming on with more of that, man, because that's, uh, that's wonderful stuff. Bye. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.